lift our heads. Dearly Father, thank you so much for giving us this evening. Just thank you for allowing us to be here. Um, it's so easy to become familiar with blessings like this, but it's really a tragedy, Father, as you know, and we're just so grateful for the friendly reminders, the gentle nods to our getting here and being encouraging to one another from you, from your spirit, Father. So thank you for this evening. We do pray for those in the congregation that can't be here for a variety of reasons. And we pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that are without hope, that need your Son. Whether they know it or not, we still pray that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt and to make an evening of rejoicing like this one even possible. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Part 48, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. The Spirit opened up on Sunday with a friendly reminder that no matter what's going on in this world or in our lives, um, we ought to be able to be at peace. Amen? I mean, it doesn't matter. Come on. DJ and I were talking about that. You know, stuff's gone in the capital. You know, it's the COVID, and it's like, it doesn't matter. Really, the only thing that matters is, let's face it, the fact that we're saved. Right? I mean, what's the rest of this? This is just like a smoke show. <laughs> Honestly, it almost feels like sometimes when you really, really step back to, you know, eternal life, look, thinking about and contemplating eternal life, life itself almost seems like white noise. Do you know what I'm getting at? I don't mean to belittle life itself or the value of life. Of course, God gave it to us. But in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter? I don't think so. I mean, and that's what the Spirit's been saying. We just got so much to be grateful for. Um, and we ought to have peace in our lives. Go to John 14, 27. I said this on Sunday. Otherwise, Jesus was a liar. If we can't have this peace, then Jesus was a liar. And you know what that means. That means our faith would be in vain. What are we doing here? We must be wasting our time. Where's our hope? It's all, un, it's all untethered at that point. If Jesus Christ is a liar, we can't believe anything he said. But we know that he's not a liar. So when we read the likes of John 14, 27, we should grab hold of it with everything we've got. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Up here on the board. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not be deceived. If you are looking to the world to make your life better in 2021, you've already missed the mark. The world will never be able to give you peace. Never. And that is verbatim from Sunday's message. Again, don't be deceived. 
The world is not going to change anything for you. It'll only get take it or change it for the worse if you allow it to. If you're thinking 2021 and there's some arbitrary line in the sand on the calendar, you think that's going to make all the difference, you've missed the mark. The world is not able to give you peace, but Jesus can. The world proposes that you look at 2021 to start fresh, you know, in your, I don't know, your quest to conquer the things of this world, um, be they, I don't know, financial or relationships or social or whatever it is. The world proposes that 2021 is a new opportunity for you to reinvigorate yourself so that you can, you know, hop right back on the treadmill. That's what I want you to do. Hey, let's get all excited. Yeah, it's a new year. Let's do this thing. Let's run to exhaustion again so that at the end of 2021, we say, I can't wait for 2022. And the cycle just continues. And we say, what happened? Like, why is it not paying off? Why, what's the, you know, the return on investment here? Don't take the bait. That's just a sinister ploy to get you away from what the Spirit's been teaching all of us lately up here on the board. Learn to be grateful for the now. You are here right now, right? You're living, you're breathing. So what? So your life might be a little bit goofy right now. I don't know. Maybe you're wallowing in a little misery. Maybe a lot of it's self-induced. I don't know. But that's not the point. The point is you're here in a building ordained by God from eternity past to hear a message ordained by God from eternity past. Does that make sense? That's beautiful. Who cares about what's going on outside of these four walls, especially right now? Bask in it. Enjoy it. And the beauty of it is if you, don't, if you have one of these at home, then you can do this thing similarly anytime you want. Open up your Bibles. Bask in the Bible. Bask in the Word of God. Turn the TV off. Shut the smartphone down. Stop going to the world to try to find fulfillment, to try to settle your soul. Leave the bottle on the shelf. You understand what I'm getting at? Don't be looking for you know, things that can satisfy your need, your desire for peace. Um, learn to live in the now. Be grateful for the now. Be grateful that you're a child of God. Here's all the fuel you need up here on the board. God decided to save you. That's all the fuel we need. Go to Colossians 1.13. Colossians 1.13. God decided to save you. That's all we need to live in this attitude of gratitude, to just live for today, to shut out all the other white noise. The world doesn't want you to, to, to dwell on this. The world doesn't want you to meditate on such a fundamental truth to your life. Colossians 1.13 reads, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness 
of sins up here on the board. He has delivered us. Does this ever get old? Does it ever get old? The question is, how could it? How could it ever get old? The fact that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jumping forward, look at 2 verse 6. Colossians 2 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How? Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Up here on the board, this came out on Sunday, rooted and built up in him. Christ Jesus is the foundation of all that we are, all that we are grateful for. I'll, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.11, excuse me, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's essentially our everything. And then the pinnacle of Paul's encouragement, look at Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Ah, right? Above all these, we're going to get back to this when we start talking about family again in our primary course of study later on this evening. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. How about verse 17? Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. How about that? Whatever you do, give thanks. Giving thanks. Do everything in his name and be grateful for the opportunity. For the opportunity to represent him, Jesus Christ himself. That's a privilege. That's an honor. That alone should be motivation. If we were to get stuck, as we contemplated on Sunday, Paul gives us the strategy, per se, that is guaranteed to work up here on the board. Colossians 4.2 in the Amplified. Be persistent and devoted to prayer, being alert and focused in your prayer life with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devoted to prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. Remember the parable of the persistent friend? Up here on the board, Luke 11, 8-9, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. So I was thinking about that, you know, why the emphasis on prayer. Um, I think we live in a society where it's instant gratification or we're on to the next thing. We think we can pray once and get a little 
pill from God that just heals us Johnny on the spot. But here's what he revealed to me when I was preparing this for you up here on the board. The answer to your unanswered prayer is pray some more. Yeah. Pray some more. If you're struggling right now with maintaining an attitude of gratitude, then pray. And if that doesn't work, guess what? Pray some more. And if that doesn't work, pray some more. You need to get closer to God. If you find yourself in a situation where your status quo is ingratitude, you need to get closer to God. The best way to do that is through prayer. And I'm not talking about praying on I-195 while you're driving to work. I'm not talking about praying while you're vacuuming the floor with your earbuds in, listening to the message you missed. I'm not talking about any of those little things that we do. I'm talking about praying to God, seeking fellowship, seeking answers, not trying to open up some little bottle that you think's got the little childproof lock, and once you figure it out, up pops a pill and everything's okay. That's not how God works. He sees your heart. He says, you're not, you're not earnest in this quest. You, you don't want to be delivered. You don't want to be closer to me. You just want to get rid of your pain that you induced by yourself. You're using me. Until we stop using him and we actually fellowship with him, when we actually pray to him, earnestly, then things start happening. But he says you have to do it persistent. That's the whole parable of the persistent friend, and that's from Jesus himself, who's one of our intercessors, as we know. So, read your Bible and use your prayer time to reflect on all that God reveals to you during your reading time. Let me say that again. Read your Bible, and then use your prayer time to reflect on all that God reveals to you during your reading time. In other words, leave some time after you finish reading your Bible for reflection and prayer. Leave a little time. It doesn't have to be a long time. Just leave some time. To reflect. For example, I mean, last time we happened to read what Romans 8 together, which is by itself incredibly edifying. But if you just, you know, read it, hop up, and start your day, you miss the, the sweet spot for spiritual growth and understanding. You miss that time where that can develop in you. Because you kind of just did it almost, you know, like, na, 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 boom. Go to back of the book, you know, oh, oh look at this. this is, I'm on my one-year reading plan. Okay, I'm going to read Sons. I'm going to read down. Okay, I did that. Boom, boom, boom. I'm out of here. Time for, time for work. Time for play. Time for whatever. you got to leave some time to, to actually let it, I don't know, sink in. After you read the Bible, it's not a chore. You're trying to get closer to Him. Again, last time we read Romans 8, we reflected on it, and we concluded this up here on the board. 
perspective this day. The holy, sovereign God of the universe, creator of all things, has adopted you into his personal family. Not a single person, thing, or circumstance will ever steal you from his embrace. How's that for something to be grateful for? Those are the things that you start to synthesize if you take that time afterwards in fellowship with him. Righteous perspective like this, it, it motivates us. But we have to take the time to meditate on it. We have to let it, you know, seep into our souls. Reading your Bible shouldn't be a chore. It shouldn't be burdensome. This is why Paul spent so much time in the epistles encouraging his readers. For example, up here on the board, Romans 12.1, in the Amplified Classic, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you, in view of all the mercies of God, to make a decisive dedication, a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. Make a decisive dedication. Maybe that, to you, it's, you know, it's that moment in time you say, I'm done. I'm done struggling. I'm done. I'm just going to hand it over to God. I'm done. Maybe it looks like that for you. I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. Make a decisive dedication. Doesn't, in other words, no waffling about it. No wishy-washiness. Commit. This is everybody's favorite word, right? Commitment. <clears throat> All right, we've got to get back to our primary course of study. To help grab our transition point from last time, go to 1 John 5, 2. 1 John 5, verse 2. Just a point of transition, because we're coming off of, you know, several special messages, um, some highlights from the blogs. <clears throat> 1 John 5, verse 2. First John 5, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I just alluded to that. For example, we have commandments that give us guidance regarding the divine institution we call family. We have guidance. We have commandments in the Holy Bible that are not burdensome. That's the beauty of understanding the Word of God and the truth about commandments in the Word of God. They're not stifling, they're freeing. They're not burdensome. They're something to be grateful for. They're encouraging, they're exciting. I know that seems like a weird thing to say, right? Don't say that to a teenager. Aren't you so excited we put these commandments on you? 
little 15-year-old brat? <laughs> no, 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 because that's their flesh. But when you mature in the faith, you say, this is exciting. You mean you're going to tell us your will? And you'll be pleased when we follow it? And we'll be blessed when we follow it? Give me as many commandments as you'd like, Lord. Give them, impart them to my soul, all of them. Because this is exciting stuff. Because I'm tired and worn out from disobedience. Been there, done that, right? Been to the circus? I'm tired of that. I'm old, like I know. Look at like John Gardner. He's old, right? He's tired. <laughs> He's sick of being disobedient. <laughs> I'm just kidding, right? You get tired. You, you know, it's exciting to be given a command. Like, obviously, my way hasn't worked. Obviously, my way has worn me out. Lord, you'll tell me what I need to do, and I'll be blessed, and I won't be worn out, and I'll, I'll get out of bed in the morning and have, like, a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning and a sense of exuberation. Yes, yes, and yes. Then please tell me. Give me your commands. When it comes to family, go to Ephesians 6.1. We do have commands. We do. And what makes me really sad in moments like this is that people take the wrong approach. They hear, you know, what, what a godly family looks like. They hear what godly commands look like uh, or are relating to family, and they become, I don't know, condemned or something because they've goofed up or, you know, their family doesn't look like the perfect little family. And that is not the point at all. That's not the point at all. That's not the point of these messages. So please don't let that happen in your soul. Okay? Ephesians 6.1, this is the Lord painting a picture, giving us what commands look like, these commands that bless families. That's what he's doing. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. There's really no wiggle room. Is that fair? So if you're a child and you're a believer, I shouldn't say a child and believer because, anyways, if you're younger, say you're still in the house and you're a believer, you should make a decisive dedication to this one verse. Say, if this is what you want from me, Lord, and you're telling me, you're promising me that I'll be blessed if I obey my parents in the Lord, then I'm going to make a decisive dedication of myself to do that thing. So if you're a young person listening to this message, hear my voice, make a decisive dedication to Ephesians 6.1 and God promises you will be blessed. Or you can be an idiot. Seriously, you can be an idiot and disobey something extremely clearly stated in Holy Scripture and be cursed for it. Come and see me in a couple years. Let me know how that worked out for you. For real. Because I know that God's not a liar. That's all I know. So I'm just saying, I'm being a good friend. Have you come here to me because I tell you the truth? Mm. Ephesians 6 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Verse 2 Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. 
Hello? That it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, like I said on Sunday, this is God's economy applied to families. He's saying, you see all that's going on right here? Children are bad parents. The, the father's not beating down the kids, but he's bringing them up. He's disciplining them. He's instructing them. He's doing his job. Our job is to raise children in the faith. That's our job. If we choose to have children as believers, that literally is our job. And that's how God's economy goes in families. And as the Spirit pointed out on Sunday, Paul gives strong guidance regarding discipline in the family. Why? Up here on the board. The value of discipline in the family. A family without discipline is a cursed family. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the, the belts out all the time or, you know, you're constantly smacking your children around. That's not what discipline is. Discipline may include a spanking or something, um, but that's not what discipline is. Discipline is discipline. It's here's the word of truth. We're going to abide and orient to this. That's what discipline is, right? Undisciplined, if you you know if it was you know to to you know if you're going to do a row in a farm, it was called furrowing, right? Am I correct? If you're going to furrow a row in a in a farm, you know discipline is you furrow a straight line. Undisciplined, you do this. Right? This is on dis you know. Anyways, I'm not good at agricultural analogies, apparently. I tried to do the gear one, and you guys all freaked out on me on Sunday. Ooh, look at all nerdy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is not discipline. It's not, when you hear the word discipline in the context of a family, it's not this. Hey, hey, dummy, that's not discipline. That might be the exacerbation part of it, right? You don't beat your kid upside the head and say, hey, dummy. You know, sometimes I, you know, sometimes you might have to, I'm just saying, right? I'm just saying if they're being really dumb, <laughs> right? But that's not discipline. That's what the Spirit's saying. I think for some reason this world has, of course, perverted the idea of discipline in the family and put an equal sign between discipline and corporal punishment. And therefore, it's no good because now it's over the top and blah, blah, blah. That's not what the Bible is talking about here. A family without discipline, godly discipline, is a cursed family. I mean, we could just use the body of Christ as an example. God loves us. He disciplines us, right? When's the last time God came down and beat you up? Right? He might discipline you this way or that way, but for the most part, it's not the case um, that he's constantly beating on us to the point of, you know, exacerbation. Okay? Here's the corollary up here on the board. The value of discipline in the family. The earlier you establish sound discipline in the family, the happier and more peaceful your family will be in the long run. The Spirit wants us to know what a godly family structure looks like so that we can model our own after it and be blessed. Yeah. So 
The earlier you do that thing, establish discipline, the better off your family will be. That's our transition. Back to Proverbs 17. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 6. Proverbs 17, verse 6. And I don't know about you. I, I honestly think that God blessed me with, uh, you know, good kids. They weren't, you know, they weren't like tyrants or anything like that. And I don't know how much of that was nature, nurture, or anything like that, or just the personalities. But um, we really had a disciplined family. Um, and I know that certain blessings came from it. I'm going to admit some things tonight. Not always disciplined, but I know from firsthand experience that God's not a liar on this. Uh, Proverbs 17, verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Um, here's the thread we were on before the special messages interrupted our curriculum up here on the board. Teaching us love. Uh, so we're jumping back before the special messages even um, and reconnecting. God uses godly families to teach children about his love from a practical perspective. The divine institutions of marriage and family are actually the platforms God uses to teach others about his love. Godly families aren't necessarily the end goal, rather they are the vehicle, the context for love to shine. Okay? Now we borrowed from Solomon's wisdom on the general topic of what we might call group strength. I mean, family, you know, the family unit is at least two, very often three or more. Go to Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. Why not borrow from Solomon's wisdom? It's impeccable after all. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. A godly family is an encouraging one because it's, you know, the picture is that cord that's not quickly broken. And so it's very encouraging, and we're better for it. We have a, you know, this is a church family. If you don't have that kind of family at home, you know, you like Paul the Apostle, he was a single guy, right? You have a church family, and there's a lot of us, and there's a reason why we use that language, family. Because we stick together, right? We stick together, and we're stronger for it. Amen? Yeah, we're stronger for it. I don't know about you, but I derive strength from this unity, this body that God gave me to be a part of. I really do. Like, I'll be having a bad day or something like that. <clears throat> I have to think, I say to myself, oh, I get to teach tonight. Or I get to be with my, my fellow, my friends, my family tonight or on a Sunday or something like that and it gives me strength 
Um, so godly family is an encouraging one. And I was thinking about that as well. I think of the times when my own family, you know, had visible cracks in it. Um, when there was ungodliness in it. And the first person God would always point to was me. Always me. If, if the family was not doing well or there was something cancerous developing in the family or something not going well, some kind of ungodliness, whether it was with the kids or the marriage, or it does not matter what it was. He always said, hey, you look in the mirror. And in summary, he'd say, I can't remember. Even when, even when you know, someone else in the family was being a complete jerk, and I said to myself, this is completely out of left field. He would always say, Ed, you have some fault here. This, this fracture that you're moaning about doesn't happen in a vacuum. You're the leader. What have you done? You're the leader. You're the head of the household. How do I know? I put you there. You have been defunct in your duties as a husband and a father. That's what he would tell me every time. Every single time. No matter, even if it was someone was being a complete, you know, somehow. I had something to do with it. And if I was truly humble... I'd accept his discipline. And even though it stung to hear it, I mean, looking back, I'm forever grateful for it. Like, legit, I'm not even just saying this to teach a message. I mean, I am legitimately grateful for those times where he said, oh, you just want to, you just want to look at your kid who's 10 and say, what a little jackass? Where have you been lately? You want to you blame your wife for being a crank? Not that she's ever a crank. I have to say that because she's right here. Right? But it has happened, you know, scarcely. Right? She's responding to you, jackass. What have you given her to respond to lately? It seems not much. Right? That's the point. So when you... When you <laughs> When you hold that, 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 that reign of responsibility in a family as a, as a man, you know, that old saying, all rolls downhill? No, it don't. Poop rolls uphill. When something's going on, ultimately, God holds you responsible. That's what delegated authority means. He's holding you responsible. What are you doing to help those underneath your charge, what are you doing? And besides complaining about it. Go to Hebrews 12.6. So, it, yeah, discipline, it hurts. But God loves me enough to discipline me. 
And he's been doing it my whole life, and I'm really, really grateful for it. And I hope you can relate. Hebrews 12, 6. Hebrews 12, verse 6. What does it say? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So be grateful. In other words, it's a proof that he loves you. We're going, to, we're going to make this conclusion very quickly. That discipline and love in the family are the same. Do you understand? Don't say you love your kids and you're too damn lazy to discipline them. That is not love. That's loving yourself. You're lazy and you're defunct. Get off your ass and discipline your kids. And stop complaining to God and everybody else how bad your life is. Last time I checked, you ready? God chose that life for you. You didn't have any problem taking his salvation, but now you have a problem with the life he chose for you after salvation? Those are the kind of conversations I've had with my father. And yes, sometimes he swears at me. And he says, get off your... I don't know, you know where this little soft and fuzzy God came from, but that's not the God I see in the Bible. Not when he's wrathful. Not when he's got a little anger up his sleeve. It ain't fun. Anyways. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. That we can share his holiness. Are you kidding me? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I taught a whole series on that. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Ah, it's good to be right. It's good to cut a straight line. <laughs> ah. Again, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, look, this, this is your like opportunity. And think about it. On the topic of family, where is discipline, which is the expression of godly love, according to Hebrews 12.6? Right? Do I have to go back? I have to go back to my notes. Ready? Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Any questions? 
So where is discipline, the expression of godly love, more critical than in my own family? Where is discipline more critical than in my own family? Better yet, in your own family. So stop looking at me, saying, this guy's a train wreck, huh? No, I'm not the only one here. You're all from families in some way, shape, or form. Where is discipline more critical in your family? Where is this more Germanic to the health and welfare of our precious families? I ask you, if discipline and love are this, you see, mm, like this, boom, mm, they'd like this. Where is all this more Germanic? I guess, you know, where everything sprouts from to the health and welfare of our families. If we, want, if we want a family, in other words, a loving family, where the peaceful fruit of righteousness exists, it's impossible without discipline. Amen? Literally, it's impossible without discipline. Impossible. You cannot love a child into a disciplinary state. You literally have to enforce discipline in the family. And if that kid says, you don't love you and I don't, you don't love me and I don't love you, fine, here's your discipline anyways. Someday, you moron, you'll understand that that's love. That it was a lot harder for me to do that than to let you off the hook. To be like one of those weak, pathetic fathers of what women who just spoil their kids and create a bunch of entitled jackasses that the rest of us have to deal with. Because that's not what God does. That's not his intention. And God disciplines those who what? He loves. So love and discipline? Mm. Don't say you're loving your kids if you're not disciplining them. You're loving yourself because it's easier to do that for you. lot harder to be a good husband and father or mother and wife than it is to be a terrible one. You pay the price down the end, but up front it just seems easier to do and, you know, listen to the lies of the world and, I don't know. Nowhere. Where, I mean, arguably you couldn't find a more important place for discipline and love to exist than the family. The Bible's taught us it's the family structure, it's in that structure that children learn what the love of God actually looks like. Hebrews 12, 6. If you want your kids to know God, stop saying it. And start showing them. Because God disciplines those he loves. So if you want to show your children the love of God, what do you think you have to do then? 
The love of God equals discipline. You have to discipline them. If you're not disciplining them, you are not showing them the love of God. Shame on you. Capital S. Shame on you. Look, you know, no one, nowhere in the Bible does it say you're going to be popular for being a good father and a good husband. Nowhere in the Bible does it say your kids are even going to like you. Nowhere. That's not the point. You have a responsibility to the one who gave you children, the one who gave you that family structure. You might say, Jesus, worse than that, my wife doesn't like me. I don't know. I'm sorry. Not a whole lot of laughing. I thought maybe, I don't know, John and Pat would laugh, but... Help me out, people. This is getting creepy up here. It's all right to laugh, you know. I mean, I'm sure your, your spouse doesn't dislike you that much. <laughs> if a husband and father is failing, you notice all the emphasis is on the, the man, right? Where it should be. If a husband and father, and I already threw myself on the floor, okay? I'm on there with you guys. I already shared more than you'll ever share with me. The beatdowns I get for being defunct. So I'm not talking down to anyone. If a husband and a father is failing, what is the message that man is sending? That man is sending to his wife and children. <clears throat> What's the message? Solomon said that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We just read in Hebrews 12, 14 that we are to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, our families are a point of extreme concentration for applying biblical doctrines. It's, that's why I use that word uh, microcosm. That's just a fancy word for saying take the world at large and shrink it to a, a little mini version. And, you know, most of the, the dynamics remain just in a little microcosm, in a little version of the bigger world, right? It, that's the family. We can apply all the doctrines just at a smaller scale that we would think about at a larger scale inside the family structure. In fact, family is the first exposure our children have to the Word of God. They understand the Word of God, if you're living it, before they can even read. That's their first exposure to the Word of God. Even Jesus grew up this way. In a godly family that had the supreme responsibility of raising him up in the faith. Talk about responsibility. Okay, you're going to raise the God-man. What? <laughs> One of my favorite parts in the whole Bible is Mary's Magnificat. It's so beautiful, it makes me almost weep. She's so incredibly, beautifully, wonderfully humble. And she was his mom. And Jesus had to grow up 
in a family. And you know what? He most certainly benefited from the faithfulness of Joseph and Mary in that household. Just imagine if Joseph was, I don't know, completely absent or defunct in his duties as a husband and father. Or if Mary were defunct in her duties as a wife and a mother. What would that have been like for Jesus? I mean, God only knows. The point is that the Spirit pointed out on Thursday up here on the board, the value of family, there's an intrinsic goodness that blankets a godly family that is unmistakably a blessing from God designed to encourage such families to persist in the faith. See, in other words, like, <clears throat> you see how it's going right now? You see how it's good right now? Do you, you, you know, see how you've gotten beyond the, the agony of disobedience and malignment and undisciplined behavior in the family. See how you've got see what happens when you do it the right way? See the peaceful fruit of righteousness when you follow my commands, which I'm burdensome by the way, you'll figure that out. You see what happens? That's the value of family. Now guess what? You want to go home. You want to be around these people. Because they're a microcosm of God's economy working. I mean, that, that's your place of refuge. That's where you want to go. If you're a man and you don't want to go home because you can't stand your family, something is really wrong. I know men that travel all the time for that very reason. And they say, oh, I'm just working hard. Are you, though? Are you, though? Oh, you're just on the road all the time because you don't want to be around your family, as gross as that sounds. Are you, though? What's, what's missing? Like, why, 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 why don't more people want to be with their families? You know what I'm saying? Like, why, I know, here's a good example, I guess. Why did, why did uh, 2020 have so much um, carnage when, <laughs> when people were forced to stay home together? I mean, according to the word of God, wouldn't that be a blessing? I think. Why are people ready to kill each other? Why did some people do it? Why did they not shut down the liquor stores? Anybody? Still haven't figured that one out. Honestly, I don't know what happened. Somehow the liquor stores stayed open with gas stations. I don't know. You know what I'm getting at, though, right? Why would that be a problem? Why would being forced to stay in a home with the rest of your family cause problems? That's a rhetorical question. But that's exactly what the Spirit's getting at. Anyways, there's an intrinsic goodness that blankets a godly family that is unmistakably a blessing from God designed to encourage such families to persist in the faith. This God-given responsibility has implications too. Indeed. Concentrate. I'm almost out of time. Thank God I almost lost my voice. Since God has put his own good name on the line, when he adopted us into his family, 
we can fundamentally conclude this up here on the board. On the topic of marriage and family, we believers are held to a higher standard. He said, here's, I'm going to adopt you into my family, but I expect more of you. Children, obey your parents. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Fathers, don't exacerbate your children. You, you get it? I expect more out of you. What do I expect? Do what, the, do what I tell you in my word. I, it's all over the place. I love you and I discipline you. Hey, dummy. <laughs> See, I did it to myself. Right? Hey, dummy, you're the head of your household. Do you love your household? Then discipline them. I'm your model. Do like I do. I hold you to a higher standard. Now, here's what I'll end with. A weak husband and a weak father will make excuses for himself. And trust me, again, I'm not talking down to anybody. I've had my own attempts at it. <laughs> and it's never worked. I'll just make up an excuse why I'm whatever. Never works. But a strong, humble man will always accept God's wisdom, love, and discipline and apply it to his own life. here on the board, perspective on marriage and family. This higher standard, right, implies greater responsibility. It is true. No doubt about it. You have a greater responsibility as a believer than you ever did as an unbeliever. Does that make sense? You are now held to a higher standard. However, this also means, you're ready? You shouldn't be like, oh, no, higher standards. Now I'm all creeped out. What? No. Higher standards means you have a greater opportunity to bring glory to God. Because God doesn't hold you to a higher standard unless he gives you the grace to be able to meet that standard. You say, wait a minute, you're going to allow me to be that husband? You're going to allow me to be that father? Yep, by my grace, I'm going to allow you to be those two things, and you're going to bring glory to me. Are you serious right now? Have you met me? <laughs> yeah, I chose you before the foundation of the world. Matter of fact, I know who you are. I love you. I've disciplined you. I've brought you up in this faith so that you could do that thing, so that you could be the man you're supposed to be. That is a blessing. That's something to be cherished, not shirked. Not like, you know, ooh, I don't, I don't, I don't like the idea of uh, responsibilities. No, 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 no. With the right perspective, with a humble heart, you love it. You say, this is awesome. Up here on the board, I'll close with this. We believers are held to a higher standard. And 
like I said earlier, that is concentrated inside the family structure. It's concentrated. And since that person with the most responsibility, the, the man, has additional responsibility, they're held even to a higher standard. Few things are uglier in this world than when a well-intentioned woman has to wear the pants in the family, has to put on the husband's shoes because he's weak and pathetic and refuses to, to add, to infuse discipline into the family. There are a few things uglier in this world than that. Amen? Oh, do you want something, you want something lighter than that? How about them petunias? I'm serious. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Let's bow our heads. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that sets us free. We're so grateful for this message, for the word, and for the simplicity of it, the inescapability of it. Teach us, Father, how to embrace it to live in it, to abide in it, and to, to cherish it. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.